patient people do we have in here this morning? Don't, I don't want to see your hands. But you're thinking, okay, cut the chatter and just get to the point so we can get out of here, right? I have heard of people, it's hard for me to understand this, but I've heard of people who will take a book, like a novel, and they will go to the end of it and read the ending of the story and then start the book. That works for you, I guess, but you know, if if I already know the ending of the story, I'm not going to bother wading through all the rest of that stuff to get to the good part. Well, if you are that kind of person, you should enjoy Mark as a writer because he doesn't lollygag on anything. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. I'm going to start in verse 16, and then we're going to go through it. This is what we read, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. As Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about Jesus went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago about the importance of the juxtapositioning. That means the position of one pericope, or one group of verses, or a thought, in relation spatially on a page or a chapter to each other. In the first 15 verses, again, that we covered in the previous two weeks, I talked about how the theme is keyed in on Jesus in his role as the substitute, as the savior of mankind, but at the same time also as the coming king who will judge the world when he comes again. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I stated two weeks ago that the kingdom of God, or alternatively called the kingdom of heaven, is now in the form of Jesus is standing right in front of the people that he came to save. And I noted that what makes the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is that it is marked by Christ's rule And his reign. And one of the hallmarks of the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth is something 
we rarely hear anything about these days, namely judgment. And I noted also that the biblical kingdom of God is not a world where we all live in the homes of our dreams on pristine beaches, where dolphins greet you every morning as you drink your cappuccino watching the sunrise on the wings of a unicorn. Rather, the kingdom of God is a world where God rules and reigns in reality, in actuality. And the lives of those people who live there will emulate and they will reflect the life of the one who made it all possible. So the kingdom of God was at hand and Jesus exclaims a warning, repent and believe in the gospel. By implication. This means woe to all who are living in rebellion to the king, who just by nature of being there is a convicting presence revealing the holy kingdom of God. In these opening verses, the groundwork is laid for Mark's account of the life of Christ on earth. And we are going to have to get used to Mark taking us from one vignette in the life of Jesus to the next vignette without much transition and without segue. Mark uses the word in the Koine Greek, euthus, translated variously, but in the NAS and other translations as immediately, sometimes translated as at once or straight away. But this word keeps reoccurring in Mark's gospel over 40 times and 11 times alone in this first chapter. And the result of that is that this makes for very choppy literature. I'm going to date myself, no big deal there. But how many of you in here remember, I'm not even sure what they were called. I'm I'm calling it a, a flip movie booklet. And you could buy these, they, you know, this one is, uh, yeah, you can't hardly make that out. But you can see it's just a little book. Well, what we used to do as kids is we would take a bunch of papers, okay, like that, and this, because I'm not an artist at all, and put a stick figure, right, in a position, like maybe like this on the first page. And then on the second page, you put the stick figure with his next leg in this position, and then the next page, maybe this foot and maybe a hand drops. And you keep doing that through this booklet, right? And then when it's all done, woo, this is the reward, you take that book, you know, kind of like you would, something like this, and you, you flip through it like this. And because of the way you've made those little pictures, the little man goes, okay? And it was like, woo, okay, that was called a video game in my day. wasn't even HD. Well, in just the eight verses that we considered the last couple of weeks we were in this book, Jesus arrives at the Jordan, he's baptized, he's ushered out to the wilderness, he shows up in Galilee saying, repent, and then he begins assembling his team that will change the world. The way Mark tells it, you got to keep up. Verses 16 through 20, new material. 
As Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, Euthus, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Reading only Mark's account on this leaves us wondering. The impression we get, just by reading again what Mark has recorded, is that Jesus might as well be, and perhaps is, a stranger who's walking along the beach one morning. He happens to spy Simon and Andrew fishing, and he calls out to them, telling them to drop what they're doing, and he offers them a career change from fishing to manning. Coin my own word there. And by the way, a manning license is free. might take some training, but unlike a fishing license, a manning license is free. Well, remarkably, the way Mark tells it, they do exactly that, walking away from their livelihoods to follow this stranger. And then again, the way Mark tells it, it seems like Jesus, he wanders down the beach a little further, I don't know, 25, 50 yards maybe, where he sees two more guys out there in a boat with their father and some hired hands. And these two guys, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, leave their father and his employees without a word to go follow the stranger simply because the stranger called. Reading this by itself, Mark's account strains credulity. It's it's just unbelievable. No wonder people think the Bible is a book of myths. But the individual books of the Bible are not meant to be read in isolation. That is why we have one book called the Bible, which is comprised of 66 smaller books all bound into the one Bible. So if we bother to read different accounts of this, say by Matthew and Luke, we realize that Jesus was far from a stranger to the four fishermen, and Simon and Andrew and James and John are all actually partners in the fishing business, which on this particular morning was pretty lousy. Jesus gives them a fishing tip, though. And how does Simon, the one we know as Peter, how does he respond? Well, from Luke... We know that Peter responds, Master, at your word, we will let down our nets. And as you know, a boatload of fish are caught, and Simon is shaken in the presence of the Lord. And it's then that Jesus issues the command to all four of them to drop what they're doing and to follow him. You see, there was a lot more interaction between all the principal parties in Mark's sparse account. But his inspired point in writing, and writing it the way he does, is particularly not to highlight background, not to underscore intimate relationships or detailed history. The Holy Spirit, through Mark, wants to convey certain things, other things than what Luke and Matthew convey. 
And again, with Mark, we have almost no details because everything is compressed to convey the matter of breakneck urgency. Urgency of what? The urgency of these fishers of fish to become fishers of men. Why? Because all people everywhere need the Savior of mankind. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. So the details of Luke and the additions of Matthew are not necessary. And in fact, they actually diminish Mark's sense through the Holy Spirit of now, now, now. It's got to be now, not later, not next week. Not to complete what you're doing there, but drop everything now and get going and move out. It's that urgent. Because it is literally a matter of eternal life and death. Mark underscores immediately they left their nets and followed. So, okay, we take a breath. We got that vignette, but don't get comfortable there. Mark ends that vignette, and he begins a new one. Now with four men in tow, Jesus enters Capernaum. And Mark tells us, verse 21 and 22, that they went into Capernaum, which, by the way, was each of the four fishermen's hometown. And immediately, there's that word, euthus, on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he began to teach. And they were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes were Kind of like the academicians of our day, the the professors, the, the teachers. And when they taught, typically what they would do is they would explain something citing what other particular rabbi had to say from whence they got their wisdom. Or they quoted one of the Targums or one of the Midrashic commentaries. That's what good academics do. They gather recognized wisdom of the ages and then they disseminate it to the not so educated. And the scribes realize that they have no inherent corner on the market of truth. And so they would make a statement, as I said, and they would cite some respected, studied, maybe even enlightened scholars of days gone by. They didn't have the authority base from which to dictate truth from themselves. If anything has changed in our culture today, and many things have, That is perhaps one of the greatest scourges of our culture today. There is no objective truth. Every man is an authority unto himself. Your truth is your truth. Well, of course, that isn't true. There is one authority base, and Jesus was blowing the people away because they were seeing that, they were recognizing that, they were perceiving that. And several years back when I was doing my weekly segments on Maine in the Morning with Mike Violet and Eric Leimbach, and I'd, people would call in and, and, or my, and Mike Violet would ask me anything and everything under the sun, usually about hot-button issues of what was going on. Maine Public Broadcasting had a penchant for calling me to get my opinion or my thoughts on whatever the latest day hot-button issues are because, you know, MPBN, they're affiliated They're the local branch of National Public Radio, so you know how conservative they are. And they always wanted the obligatory conservative uh, hate-mongering pastor's opinion on things. 
so that they could rip it out of context. I remember one time Charlotte Renner did about a 54-minute interview of me on a particular subject at hand, and when the piece came out, my part was 22 seconds and had no bearing on what we were talking about. Yeah, I stopped doing interviews with them shortly thereafter. Well, anyway, when people would call up, whether it was on Maine in the morning or when MPBN even then, when I was still talking with them and all, I would strive to preface any of my remarks I made with something along the lines of, look, what I think on the issue is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what God Almighty thinks, and he has revealed to all of us what he thinks in the Bible. And then I would tell them what God thought on whatever the particular issue du jour was. When Jesus was asked for his opinion, as he was on many occasions, what Jesus answered was final. He didn't have to cite a reference. He didn't have to quote three sources to show that that whatever he said was not outside mainstream thinking. He didn't have to qualify his statements in any way, in any shape or any form. What he said was capital T, truth. Whether anyone else in the entire universe agreed with him or not. And what he said was final. There should have been no arguments, no yeah buts, no well have you considered... And it was so profound that the people in the synagogue, according to the NAS, translates the word there, amazed. It's a place on ta. Amazed doesn't do that justice. It doesn't really translate well. It is a very strong form of this idea of being literally stricken with panic or overwhelmed with astonishment. So here's Jesus of Nazareth. He's standing in the worship hall, lecturing from a platform, not of studied opinion, but from a place of inherent authority. And it was so, it was so palpable to the people listening that it unnerved them in wondrous dismay. Not in agreement necessarily, as we know but dismayed that there was something about Jesus' answers that left you not wanting to speak. And this was unique. And Jesus was unique, and this is a big deal, which is why Mark notes it. But of course, it's Mark's writing, so before you can think of it for a moment, he moves the narrative right along to verse 23. Just then... Why translators do this sort of thing, I have no idea. Because that is the exact same word that's translated immediately everywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. It's the word euthus. Why they said just then instead of immediately, it should be immediately. Immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. That would be called a demon. And he cried out saying, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, you understand, this isn't the man who's crying out, okay? It is the demon who is crying out. And the demon is speaking for the whole realm of demons, hence the word, what do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? Question mark. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, a picky 
pastor's point right here in this pericope. Wow. First, second service. Got it. The translators, you understand, translate this as a question. I just read it that way. I even underscored question mark. Maybe, but maybe not. And I say not. And the reason I say not is that maybe you don't realize that punctuation in our Bibles is not inspired. There was no punctuation in the vellums and the documents and everything that that, uh, comprised the writings of Scripture. Meaning these were put in centuries later by editors or publishers or both in order to make things what they thought would be easier for people to read. And yeah, I mean, that's not all a bad thing. But in this particular case, it does mark a disservice. It does the passage a disservice. Why? Why do I contend that this isn't a question? I'm glad you asked. Remember, this is a picky pastor's point. Word order in the Greek, in the Koine Greek language, is not important, almost routinely. It's not important. So in other words, you could take uh, the words that you have for a sentence and you could literally throw them down on a piece of paper, and no matter how they ended up, if you understood the Koine Greek language, you wouldn't have any problem reading it and what it says, because each word has a different ending or prefacing uh, letter or something like that that helps you identify what is the subject, what is the verb, what is the adjective, which is the adjective uh, you know, modifying in the particular sentence. Greek's a very complicated language, but it's also very specific. See, in English, word order makes a lot of difference. For example, take a very simple five, six-word sentence. A cat ran into the car. And now let's change the word order up a bit. A car ran into the cat. You see, that changes the meaning considerably. A cat ran into the car, no big deal. A car ran into the cat, cause for celebration, depending on... Oh, 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 that was so low. I just got to keep you with me, okay? I really adore cats. I, I do. Especially with a cream sauce and garlic touches in it. Ah, okay, wow. Former picky pastor's point, um, word order, you see, in English changes the meaning. It does not in the Greek language. So in Greek, have you come to destroy us is just as easily read and legitimately read as we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You have come to destroy us. Okay? That's a substantial difference. Why am I making a picky point of this? Because the previous vignette, going back to verse 15, where Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand, followed by his command to repent and believe the gospel, was a declaration to all realms, earthly and spiritual. In other words, he announced this to both humans and demons alike. The demons, knowing way more about eschatology than we do, eschatology is the study of the things of the end times, right? The book of Daniel, a lot of things in there that are eschatological. The book of Revelation is all eschatological. The demons know more about eschatology than we do. 
And they know all too well the implications of this one standing before them, speaking with unquestioned authority, announcing the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The realm of demons know that they are defeated already. And it's just a matter of time. So when the long-awaited Savior shows up and makes the statement that the kingdom of God is at hand, the demons rightly assume that their destruction is near. And so the authority of Jesus' announcement of the kingdom and the need to repent and believe the gospel is tantamount to declaring the beginning of the end. The end of what? The end of Satan's reign on earth. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the demons recognize their fate and receive it, accept it, acknowledge it long before we do. In reality, in truth. Without getting too far far afield here, what I just said may be the most destructive Stronghold, if not the, certainly one of the most destructive strongholds in the lives of God's people. And it is the most effective way that demons have of bringing a redeemed, saved people down. It is the most effective way of defeating people who are told by God that you are not merely conquerors, but you are more than conquerors through Him, Christ, who loved us. The demons... Get ready for this one. The demons believe more deeply in God than we do. You find that hard to swallow? Then what did James mean in his book, chapter 2, verse 19, when he writes, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. And what was the context there in James 2? It's all about faith and what constitutes real faith, an active and a victorious faith, versus useless belief, useless benign faith that says one thing but doesn't live in light of it at all. And so what happens is the devil gets the upper hand so often in our lives because he knows that our faith in the theoretical to us victory of Jesus is tepid and it's weak and it's very uncertain, especially when things start crumbling around us. And so we perceive some kind of danger, which danger is real, going back to Ben's message last week, we perceive some kind of danger, but then we create a state of fear that shouldn't be real, but all too often is because we allow it to be. Why shouldn't it be real? Because we know what Jesus said and what Jesus did concerning everyone who believes. Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 29. My Father, Jesus speaking, who has given them to me, referring to you and I, those who believe, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what are you worried about? Not even Satan himself 
is great enough to pluck you out of God's hand once you are there. Someone asked me just yesterday at the membership class, so does the free church believe once saved, always saved? Yes, it does. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, you are from God, little children, referring to us, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Well, who is the them referring to? That the believer has overcome. In the context of 1 John, it's the spirit of Antichrist and the demons. This whole idea of the reality of spiritual warfare is one that the Pentecostal church and the charismatic church is far more schooled in and accepting of than the non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal church, and it's been to the detriment of those like us. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, saying, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. He's referring to demonic forces that are behind the scenes, that are working in and through people. I had a strange thing happen yesterday. Um, I got an email, which was obviously spam. It was, it was somebody's email account that got hacked. Uh, I've received many of them from many different people over the past several months because it's got some weird link in it to something to do with Oprah Winfrey, okay? And, and they're all identical. And so I know, oh, somebody's you know, account was hacked. And so I emailed this person, um, and I said, i just letting you know that I've received two spam emails from you. Your account's been hacked. Yeah, you better check it out. The person that I thought I was emailing by the name, you know, just one of those geriatric wonders, I was absolutely convinced that I was talking to and emailing somebody in this church because the name was very similar to somebody in this church. And so my message back to her and her back to me was getting really weird because I'm like, huh? And in passing, she said, okay, thanks. I'm really sorry for doing that. She said, how are you doing? Well, to me these days, that always means, you know, how's your health? And so I said, well, I'm really looking forward to Boston, you know, May 11th to try and get some answers. She writes back, huh? <laughs> and I thought, huh? And so I wrote back and I said, Oh, I'm sorry, I just, you know, it's been over a year, and I kind of thought everybody knew. So then I went on to tell her. Well, anyway, <laughs> as the messages are going back and forth, the last one she sends me is thanking me for 28 years ago when I discipled her in the area of spiritual warfare. 28 years ago in Chicago, and I went... This isn't who I thought it was. <laughs> I haven't let her know any of this yet. And I just may not. So, But I do remember her name was Joellen coming to me. And her life was in upheaval, but she was a solid Christian or a good solid marriage and all. But clearly what was going on was just, just so demonically tainted and all. And so I schooled her in the art, if you will, the discipline of spiritual warfare, a la Ephesians 6 and the whole armor of God, and a lot more to it than that. 
the realm of demons is real. But the Christian doesn't need and truly does not need to fear it. And there aren't many around that I know of anyway, like Barbara and I, who used to be in what is called deliverance ministry. Casting out demons. Yes, it still happens today. Different personalities in the same person. Violence, profanity, etc., etc. And yet being utterly subjugated to the spoken words of God and who we are in Christ. And as a child, I grew up being afraid of the dark. Not in a you know hyper-paranoid kind of way. But I, <laughs> I said, why am I telling you this stuff? I do remember a night when I wet my bed because I didn't want to get up and walk to the bathroom in the dark. Now, I have my brother to thank for all of this, okay, because he used to get great delight out of scaring little brother in the dark and jumping out and all that sort of stuff, right? Anyway, so it always amazed me in hindsight and looking back at the kinds of things that Barbara and I were thrown into. I mean, with Hollywood-style, you know, histrionics in the lives of people and demons and voices and everything else, and then having what I call retaliatory strikes in the middle of the night in my house, in my bed, and sounds and seeing things and just all this sort of stuff. And I have to tell you by the Spirit of God and the power of the resurrected Jesus, there was no fear. No fear at all. And that used to boggle my mind. It's like, dude, you were so afraid of the dark under normal circumstances. You see, that's because Satan has not been able to use that all too common chink with all Christians on who we really are in Christ and what it means that we are more than conquerors in him and that nobody is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, and we are fighting a vanquished foe. But as I said, so many Christians just buckle at the first signs. Paul writes to the church at Rome with some of the most powerfully empowering words for the believer in all of Scripture. He writes in chapter 8 of Romans, beginning in verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Well, tell me this isn't relevant. Oh, not to us, but to the Christians in the Middle East. Or distress or persecution? or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. No, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is who every Christian is in Christ. Again, Paul writes, thank you, praise the Lord. He writes to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 15, referring to Jesus, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He wasn't talking about earthly soldiers and armies, he was talking about the demonic forces. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. Where? At Calvary, having triumphed over them through him, through his resurrection. So here's this Jesus speaking in the synagogue, 
And lo and behold, a man is demonized. Yes, demonized, not possessed. I don't care what your translation says. Anywhere in the Bible where it says the word possessed, scribble through it and write in demonized. The word possessed is a bad word. It's a poor translation and it's not accurate. Demonized means to be afflicted by demons, and it runs the gamut from external to internal to what we would think of as being possession, meaning the individual really has no control, to everything in between. We see the woman bent over with the back ailment, the woman with the hemorrhage and the issue, and when Jesus cast out demons from these people, they were healed. They were all demonized. There is no possession or non-possession. They're just demonized to one degree or another, which includes Christians. Every, every casting out of demons that I've ever done was on believers. Oh, pastor, you shouldn't have gone there. Because I learned that demons cannot inhabit Christians. So did I. I came out of seminary believing that. <laughs> God has a way of saying, okay, Mr. Smarty, Smarty Pants. What do you do with this now? Okay, that's for another day, another time. So there's this demonized man in the synagogue. And the demon exclaims, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Our time is up, isn't it? It's a statement and a question, but it's a statement. Mark 1, verse 25. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet. (laughs) He said, shut up! And come out of him! And throwing the man into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And the people in the synagogue were all amazed. This is a different word in the original language than the one that was the hyper-intensive, powerful, amazed Again, I wish they would at least indicate that in an English translation. This amazed was, they were just kind of like, whoa, okay, that's interesting. And look at, look at, I mean, this is really kind of weird the way this, this is recorded. They were all amazed so that the effect was they debated among themselves saying, hmm, what is this? (laughs) Okay, so synagogue, place of worship. So let's say we're all in here, right? And all of a sudden, man, this demonized individual you know, starts going through the attics, and we're hearing voices come out of everything else. And then, you know, this person comes over, and they go, look, in the name of Jesus, be silent and come out of him. And whoa! And he's freed up. What would you be thinking? You'd be like, these guys are going, wow, isn't that interesting? What do you make of it, Saul? Well, I don't know. What about you, Morty? Well, I'm thinking uh, there's something different about this guy. Hmm? And indeed, he says, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. That was not uncommon in the day. What was uncommon is for somebody to command unclean spirits and they obey him. And here's Mark, Euthus. Immediately the news about Jesus spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. In this vignette, it wasn't a miracle that convinced the crowds or caused word to spread. It was his authority. 
the urgency of what we're reading in the Gospel of Mark and why everything is just boom, 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 and moves along, is not merely for those who do not yet believe in Christ. Oh, it is for them to be sure. But it is for those who have done so, who have bowed their knee to Christ, who are followers of Jesus, that they would understand, receive, believe the urgency of becoming fishers of men. The moment the baby's cries were heard emanating from that stable that we celebrate Christmas morning, the celestial clock began ticking until God's heavenly alarm sounds and the kingdom of God will yet again come and visit earth. For those who at that point have not repented and have not believed, it will be too late. It would be helpful, I think, for us to gain some perspective on our life and times. It would be helpful, I believe, for everyone who claims to be a Christ follower to back up just a handful of years to 2008 and review the history to review the cultural shifts and the social attitudes of our nation over just the past six-plus years and compare it to the past 60. But first let it sink in as to how much our country has changed that fast for the worse. And then take another scan of the changes around the world in just the last two and a half years with respect to the Middle East and Israel and Europe and Islam and ISIS. And once you put the new dangers and the concerns in their proper place, think about what you currently understand about the book of Revelation and then contemplate prayerfully your role in living at this particular point in history and how many years that you realistically expect to be living down the road. And then contemplate the idea that you and me just may well be living in the end times, not in anticipation of the end times, not with this pappy Christian hypothetical, well, I do believe that Jesus could return at any time, and that's why I am prepared at any moment. What a bunch of horse pucky for the average individual. But I'll tell you this, you consider the Christians now over in the Middle East, and I wonder if they don't believe that they are living in the end times. Not acknowledging the possibility that we may be alive long enough to actually start to see or to be and to live and all of that. No, but that they are right smack dab in it because sports fans, and I don't say this lightly or casually, nor does it mean that I am right, but I believe that we are living in the end times today, in them. Not waiting for them to begin. And yes, I know technically the end times theologically began the day Jesus rose from the dead. I got that. But I'm talking about 
revelation and all that that means and the antichrist and the increase in evil and not just the marginalization now, but where Christians are becoming enemies of the state globally and what the Supreme Court is going to be considering over the next several weeks with homosexual marriage. When we, when the Supreme Court found an absurd inherent right in the Constitution for a woman to kill her baby, we went on that slope from here to here basically overnight with a decision. And if this goes the way I expect it to go, we will be going from here to here again overnight. And the whole purpose of that is for Satan to be able to complete his purposes on getting getting rid of Christians in the world because until and unless we Christians, we true followers of Christ are gone, there can be no uprising of the Antichrist. Not spirit of Antichrist. He's here and has been here. But the Antichrist. Do you see? One world government. How can there be a unified planetary government with Christians around? And if you don't think that jihad is coming to America... You've already missed it. Oh, it's, we're just getting a little appetizer. Fort Hood was jihad. The Boston Marathon was jihad. It's coming, and it is coming by design of the leadership of this nation. And that is so bizarre that it cannot be anything other than God in heaven almighty. And so it's his purposes. And believe it or not, we can actually rejoice. Whoa. We can rejoice in the fact of all that is happening. Candidly, no, I don't feel like rejoicing. I want to run off somewhere and hide. Thank you. It's going to be two of us. Anybody else? (laughs) But, you know, in those darkest moments, this is so much God. It is God's doing to bring about that glorious end that we are all longing for and waiting for. I don't know if you're warped like me. And you start fantasizing about what would you do if you are sitting there with a knife at your throat? Deny Jesus or lose your head? And I know. I know what I think I'd do and what I'd say. (laughs) That's the difference between theory and reality. I know what I hope I would do. So think of this. I don't even want to tell you what I read reliably, that Antonin Scalia, you know who he is? He is probably the most conservative justice on the Supreme Court. And what he publicly stated about the FEMA internment camps in this country. It's scary. If you're interested, look it up. If you want to be depressed, look it up. But don't be depressed. Because, look, aren't we all longing to be in the presence of God? And we picture that transpiring over a number of years and growing old gradually and all that goes with that. So if it comes to the place that we are either whacked by gunfire, our heads are lopped off or whatever it is, to be absent in the body is what? To be present with the Lord done. We're done. But just thinking about those processes and the getting there, man, it's uncomfortable. If you think I'm just going, whoa, man, we're in the end times. <laughs> it's not me. I'm trying to give a picture of reality and then the picture of profound hope. 
that is greater than this sucky reality in which we find ourselves now. And what is the most important thing for us to do as a people of faith is to be fishers of men with a new urgency and boldness. Why don't we stand? Heavenly Father, uh, this morning, we thank you for this powerful message. Pray, O God, that it will sink into us that we have failed in many ways. And, O God, by repenting and turning more to you and seeking you and crying out to you, O God, that we know that we are held in God's hands and nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Oh God, the urgency is so truthful that there may be somebody here today that has not made that commitment to you and it's urgent in their life that through the blood of Jesus that can wash away that sin through the repentance, they can step from hell into the kingdom. Oh God, give each of us the strength to be fishers of men, to share our belief with somebody else, to reach out to them with the hand of love that reached out to us. Oh God, we pray for the Supreme Court that the listening that they're going to have to do. We pray that your hand will be on each one of them, O God. Help them make wise decisions and help us stand in the faith that Jesus is our Lord. Amen.